Colossians chapter 3, as we're going through the book of Colossians, we started chapter 3 last week, and we're continuing to finish it tonight, Lord willing. Um, the Colossians 3 started out with, and really Paul is building on all the theology that he put in uh, in the first two chapters as he applies it in the, in the third and fourth chapter, but he's trying to explain how the Christian life is supposed to be different. There's to be a change, a transformation. And a big part of that change comes because we realize who we are, realize what God has done for us. He compares it to the people that he describes in verse six as the sons of disobedience. Those are people who just deliberately want to go against whatever it is that God calls them to do. And And he's saying that's why their lives are such a mess and that's why they face wrath ultimately is because, um, thanks Mike, is because they're choosing to live in a way that's contrary to the way that God has laid out for them. But he said you're different. And in verse 12, he points out several ways in which we need to recognize that we're different. And he says, first of all, you're the elect of God. That means God chose you. I don't understand this concept, but the scripture teaches it very clearly that actually, not only that God chooses us now, but that God actually chose us before the foundation of the world. Before anything had ever been created, God knew everything and he knew us. And he decided to have a relationship with us and chose us and made us the elect of God, those who are chosen by God. Now, it always feels good to be chosen whenever someone chooses you for anything. And it always feels bad when people choose to not be with you or to not be around you. That's why it hurts to get dumped in a relationship. Because you get into a relationship and you're excited, like, man, this person has chosen to be with me. And then after you're in it for a while, they unchoose you, and it's really painful and, and difficult. Most of us remember being kids, and when they choose sides for teams, it's, you, you just, I mean, you don't want to be the first draft choice, but you just don't want to be the last. You don't want to be the one at the end where it's like, you take them, no, you take them, and they're fighting over who has to have you now. Some of you are stud athletes and never had to experience that. But for many people, they know what it's like to not be chosen. And it it hurts. It's painful. And so he says, understand this. God chose you. That ought to have an effect. That ought to make a difference in our lives. And he says, you're holy. No need to feel plagued with guilt. No need to feel that you don't measure up. No need to be self-conscious about your failure. We've all sinned. We all continue to sin. And yet, we are all made holy by, by God himself. He declares us to be righteous. On the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can say that we are pure and holy. And that changes the way you live when you realize that. It takes away the stress. It takes away the pressure. It sets us free. And he says also you're beloved. Someone loves you. The the most important person in the universe loves you. If you don't feel loved, it does a lot of cruddy things in your life. Just like feeling like you're not chosen, it's even worse to not be loved. To say, you know, I really don't know anyone who loves me. But he says, There's no need for a child of God to ever feel that way. God showed his love toward us, Paul explained in Romans, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So every day and every moment, when you fail, when you succeed, when you're looking pretty good, when you're just a mess, God looks at you and he loves you. And that should, again, have a transforming effect on our lives. And then he says, On the basis of those things, put on these qualities, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, putting up with each other, 
forgiving each other in the same way that Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And we discussed all that last week. Now we've come to verse 14. Because in saying, and earlier he was saying, put off the stuff that ruins your life, put on the things that will enrich your life. And then as he's saying, above all these things, verse 14, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The, the most important thing by far that you need to adapt as a part of your character, as a part of your life, as a rule by which you live, is love. And the Bible is just really clear about this, so much so that the book of 1 John is sometimes almost confusing when he makes such a big deal about love and says, you know, basically you can tell if you're a Christian based on whether or not you love people. You can tell if you love God based on how you treat people. And so, you know, this is a big deal. And of course, you're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul, in describing love, before he does that, he shows how important it is that he says, it doesn't matter what else you do, if you don't have love, nothing that you do amounts to anything. If you speak in tongues of men and of angels, if you have all knowledge and understand all mysteries, if you pour your life out for others and even give your body to be burned, but you do any of that stuff without love, it does not matter. It's so important for us to get this into our heads because I think, I mean, love isn't difficult when you understand that you've been loved, but it's a decision to say, I want to live a life that's full of love or not. And, and yet, loving people, interestingly enough, is the most satisfying thing that you can ever experience. Loving someone else does more for you than it does for them. But it primes the pump when you love someone who's unlovely. And it has a, a, an incredibly powerful effect in their lives. But that's just the start. That continues and that walking in love is what Christianity is all about if you were going to boil it down to one concept. I mean, yes, we know love by what Jesus did on the cross, and so the gospel's extremely important. But if you know he loves you, but then that doesn't make you a loving person to others, then do you really get it at all? Or can you honestly say that God has made you a new person, that you've been born again, if looking at your life, it's not observable that you are any more loving than, any, than you were before you came to Christ or than anyone else is out there. Now, the answer is not for us to fake love. Wow, love is so important. I guess I better pretend it. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. It's, as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, love is what comes out of that. And love, or the lack thereof, is like a warning light to let you know if there's not a lot of love in your life, um, something else is wrong. Something at the very basis of your relationship with God is wrong. Maybe it's that you've never really given your life to him. Maybe it's that you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to really fill you. Um, you've hung on to areas of your life that you restrict God from. Maybe it's that you're upset because you don't see other people being very loving to you. But our love doesn't come from people being loving to us. Our love comes by discovering that we are beloved of God. If he loves us, that ought to be plenty. That ought to be enough. Now, if you feel like no one loves you, that's another great warning sign that maybe you're not being loving because love will ultimately be reciprocated. If love is expressed, love will be returned. People are hungry to be loved, and when they know that you love them, it may take a little time, but sooner or later, that's going to come back to you in, in a great way. And so chances are, if, you, if your life perspective is, 
I have so many people who love me. Chances are you're a person who could also say, I have so many people who I love, and I let them know. I express that. I show that love. See, if, if I'm not feeling people loving me, that's a warning that I'm not being loving. And if I'm not being loving, that's a warning that I don't feel God's love for me. And so I need to plug back into my relationship with him and to enhance my devotional life with him and to draw close to him and to allow him to work in my life because love is the thing that if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Nothing else that you do matters. It doesn't matter if you tithe. It doesn't matter if you're serving, if you're pouring your life out for others. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you seem like a very spiritual person. No, it all comes down to that. And, and Paul says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That word for perfection refers to the culmination or the completion or the maturity of a life, of a relationship. The bond is, of course, referring to how we're drawn together and how, how we're drawn to the Lord. And so, ultimately, it's walking in love that causes us to be drawn closer to the Lord, that causes us to be bound to each other. It's why sometimes when you go through a tough time in your life, and it causes people to be able to have an opportunity to serve you and to draw close to you. It's why that some of those relationships that are formed during those times of difficulty become lifelong bonds because we are bound together by that love and ultimately the culmination of that bond, the completion of it is that you're close and you can't ever imagine anything ever pulling you away from that intimacy, from that relationship that you have that was formed by allowing God's love to flow forth from your life. And so the whole point of love is for us to have those bonds, for us to feel close to God, for us to feel close to each other. And those bonds are what ultimately matures us, and it comes from love. If you don't allow the Spirit of God to work his love into your life, you can get pretty lonely. And you can feel that you don't have connections with hardly anyone. And it doesn't ever seem to be getting better. And, and the idea of a mature relationship is something that it's hard to even get, your, get the concept in your head. Um, but love will do all of that. And, you know... What do you do if you find yourself feeling like, oh, boy, I don't see that happening? Well, start in two places. Get back to your relationship with God and spend some quality time with Him, devotional time with Him. But secondly, find someone who really needs love and, and give love to someone who doesn't have it otherwise or who, who, for whom it'll really mean a lot. You know, I wouldn't start by writing a letter to Brad Pitt and telling him that you love him. You may love Brad Pitt, and I'm fine with that, but he has so many people telling him that they love him doesn't mean that much. But you look around and you find someone who doesn't have anything really to offer you, and that's where you start. And that's why the scriptures always talk about looking out for the poor and for the needy and for the hurting and for those who are in prison and for those who, you know, are, are you know, um, fatherless, those who are widows. And you look for those connections and, and offer your love in those ways and, again, it gets that work flowing. And, um, and so that's, that's what he's saying. That's really what it's all about, ultimately, all the other stuff that you put on is just another way of saying, put on love. When you put on love, you're putting on tender mercies and kindness and humility, meekness, long-suffering, 
putting up with each other and forgiving each other, those are all different ways of saying, I love you. Now he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of God. The sense that God has given me a sense of calm. God has given me a sense that everything's going to be okay, even if the way I look at it, it looks like I don't know how it's going to be okay because I'm really facing some challenges in my life. But, you know, I just know God. I know he loves me. And therefore, I know that we're going to get through this. I know that this is going to work out. And the result of whatever I'm going through is that I'm going to be drawn closer to God and closer to others as I face this trial. And the peace of God is a peace that passes understanding. It comes before the solution shows up. It comes before God answers your prayers. It's a peace that comes in the middle of prayer. It's a peace that comes even as you're beginning to pray. Before you have your solution, you want that peace of God. And interestingly, too, peace is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. When Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the other words after that describe love. And so he says love, joy, peace. And then long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control, a lot of these same things that he tells us here to put on. It all flows out of that love. And if there's no peace, maybe you need to look at love again. Maybe you need to see if you're really allowing the Spirit to work through you and in you with his love. But peace should be a fruit of a relationship with him. And we should be the people who keep our cool, who are calm, collected, who have a strong confidence that God is God and that he knows what he's doing. Now, it's interesting the way he says it here, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word there for rule was a word that they would use for an umpire at an athletic event. You know if you've ever played sports without umpires, it's pretty bad. It's bad enough with umpires, you're, but at least then you're, everyone's mad at the umpire. But you, you play sports where everyone's supposed to call their own fouls. I don't think I ever fouled in my life. <laughs> and this is talking about our life and saying, what is it that blows the whistle? What is it that tells you, hold on there a minute, what is it that lets you know a little alarm that goes off? You know, like a, in, a, in an airplane, if you're getting too close to a stall attitude, if you have low enough power or a high enough attitude of the airplane, before the plane stalls, which is, <coughs> an airplane stalling isn't like an engine that shuts off like in a car, an airplane that stalls, it's because the air stops flowing over the wings and you lose lift. <coughs> and being in an airplane when it stalls is really, even when you know it's coming, it's kind of interesting because it just begins to drop like a rock. And if you just let it drop, usually a wing goes over and you go into a spiral um, heading down real fast. But there's a, there's a scary sound in the cockpit of the airplane that's a stall warning. Before you actually stall, this thing starts beep, and you know you're right there. The funny thing is, you have to get close to a stall in order to land an airplane. And so with most airplanes, as you are coming down over the numbers, ready to set down on the, on the runway, the stall warning is screaming at you. And sometimes life is that way. It's like if you're... If you're not feeling the stall horn going off, maybe you're going too fast. Maybe you don't have the right angle. But a stall horn is a comforting thing if you are watching your instruments and you're watching your airspeed and you know that horn going off means I'm in the correct attitude to actually set the airplane down. In the same way, 
Life is lived on the edge a lot of times. Life is, we feel those stall horns going off, and it just means, hey, you're in kind of a critical area. It's to wake you up. It's to keep you alert. But the peace of God serves as that stall warning in our lives. It's the umpire. It's the buzzer that lets you know, hey, the food is done. And the peace is something that we should be constantly evaluating. Am I at peace or am I stressed? Not only because stress will kill you and take years off your life, which it will, but, but the peace is what lets you know that the Spirit of God is working in your life. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and be worked up and anxious. If you're filled with the Spirit, love and joy and peace are going to be manifest in your life. And so Paul says, let the peace of God, which is sometimes the first one to go, sometimes you can still be loving and seem somewhat joyful, but you feel yourself losing your peace. And he says, let that be the umpire in your life. Let that be the rule Every once in a while, just check yourself on a peace scale and say, how anxious am I? How stressed am I? How emotionally worked up am I? And let the stall horn of peace, the peace of God, just buzz to let you know you're getting in a critical area here. You haven't sinned. You haven't done anything of lasting damage at this point, but it's just letting you know. It's kind of like a yellow card in soccer. It's not gonna penalize you, but we're letting you know you're getting into that area of warning. And so the peace of God is to be that for us. Um, And by the way, to warn, I have found that to warn other people that they're losing their peace usually doesn't work very well. Because you're not the umpire. The peace of God is the umpire. We are not to be constantly correcting each other. What we need to do for each other is to encourage each other, not to criticize each other. But the peace of God is that which we all need to submit ourselves to and be honest about, am I losing my peace? Sometimes when you get irritated with someone, that's one of the first indications. But Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. So having the peace of God will allow you to be at peace with others. We're we're supposed to be one body. We're to be unified. When you start feeling alone, when you start feeling at odds with others, when you're getting in a little disagreements or you're just you think that going off and climbing a mountain and living in a cave by yourself sounds like a good idea or you know finding out if the unabomber's cabin is for sale you know sometimes that's just a warning that you're not clicking with people and maybe that's the warning to you that you're really not at peace with God in a full sense now he's fine with you if you're his child and so he tells you that you're at peace. There's no reason for you to not be at peace with others. There's no reason for you not to feel the peace of God unless you're believing the lies of the enemy. And so let that be the umpire. Let that be the ruler. So often the umpire in our life is whether or not we are right or wrong. And that shouldn't be the umpire. It shouldn't matter. Because more often than not, you can be right and do it in a really wrong way. I think probably some of the things I've done in my life that I, that I most regretted um, were when I was right. And then I was wrong about the way I handled what I was right about. So my, I, personally, if I'm right or wrong about something, I don't care that much. Jesus died to wipe all of that clean and make it not be an issue anymore. Most of the fights that we have as terms of finding out who's right, there is no 
real right or wrong most of the time. You can't do it both ways and see how it's going to work out anyway. But instead of having right and wrong be the umpire, I would rather say if I'm right or if I'm wrong, I want to be right or wrong in the right way. And that is being loving, being forgiving, and being at peace. And so that's the life that he's describing as the Christian life. If you understand what God has done for you, there's no reason in the world why your life shouldn't reflect those kinds of of values and those kinds of awarenesses. Now, if you're going, man, I feel like I'm at war all the time. I don't even know what it feels like to relax and to have peace. And I don't know if anyone loves me. Don't get all bummed about it. You know, don't just feel this is all I needed on a Wednesday night was to come here and find out that I'm probably not even a Christian. No, 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 no. The reason he's saying this stuff is that we all struggle with these things. But what he's letting us know is you can do better. You can have victory. And understand what the standard is and then take little, you know, little baby steps toward moving in the direction of having that become more a part of your life. To quote Dr. Leo Marvin. Yeah, never mind. Um, I think that was his name. Richard Dreyfus in uh, his part in um, What About Bob? Yeah. Get these weird references and then I have to explain them. He wrote a book called Baby Steps. That's where that came from. I highly recommend it, even though it doesn't exist. So (laughs) let it rule in your hearts. You were called in one body and be thankful. Thanksgiving, just being grateful for what you are. You know, the reason he says this isn't because, for instance, God has his feelings hurt because we don't thank him enough. When you understand God, you realize he doesn't need anything from us. God isn't sitting there with bated breath, missing us horribly, and hoping that we throw him a bone sometime. God is complete in and of himself. He was fine before we ever came along. And he was fine before there even was a creation. But he wants us to be thankful because being thankful is really good for us. But he also wants us to be thankful to each other because people appreciate being appreciated. And so this is a good pump primer also for this peace of God and for his love to work in our lives, for that bond to happen, because being thankful draws people together in a way that complaining does just the opposite. And, you know, I... I'm amazed when I look at the prayers in the Bible to see how much they were dominated by thanksgiving. And it convicts me because so often I get caught up in my prayer life with just making a list of every sick person I know, everything I don't have, everything that everyone needs, and every time there's a catastrophe. And there's nothing wrong with praying for those things, but I just see biblically... Prayer is a bit different than that um, because it's built on this foundation of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving changes your entire perspective on your life. Thanksgiving causes people to want to hang around with you. I mean, let me just ask you this. When you know that you're going to see someone, there are some of the people that you know that when you see them, they're going to tell you, all the trials that they've been going through. You know people like that. No one here, but most of them only come on Sundays. But no. (laughs) How do you feel when you know you're going to talk to that person? You're kind of drained even before you see them sometimes. You also know people who when you say, hey, what's up? They're going to say, God is so good. I'm going through some stuff, but man, God is just coming through for me. He's, I am so excited. I love him so much. He's been good to me. It's funny, some of the people, like many of you know Dean Waters, who on Sundays sits back there and he comes down and prays for people. 
Dean is the kind of guy I have never heard him complain about anything, and I've known him for many, many years. And whenever I talk to him, no matter what he's going through, and he's gone through a lot with his family and everything, he, he's always thankful. He always has something good to say. And yet, if, I'm, if I heard, if I have something that's wrong, he's also one of the first ones who wants to pray for me. And I love that kind of perspective. And it would be great if we would discover that more in our own lives. We're enough at peace that we're not stressed out and amped out about what we're going through or what anybody else is going through. We love, we feel loved, we feel special and chosen by God. And so that peace rules in our hearts and boy, all we can talk about is how much God has done for us. Now, a great way to pray, even when you have something desperate to pray for, is to start out by thanking God for his track record, for how much he loves us, for how much he has done for us, for how good he is. And that thanksgiving just lays the groundwork for prayer of faith. Because it's like, God, you've done so much for me, I really, I can't even hardly think of anything to ask. You're so good. And then you know how good he is. And then when you do ask him for something, you're, you know that he hears you. And, and it's on the basis of your past relationship with him that you believe that he's going to work in that situation. It's a terrible feeling to pray for something and, and think, this ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know, this, I'll pray, but <laughs> it's too bad. It's too late, you know. But if we would be more thankful, not only would other people be more interested in being a part of our lives and praying for us and fellowshipping with us and, and loving us, but we would have more belief in God because we forget everything that he has done so quickly and we're off. It's like some of us live our lives as if it's one big prayer list and you know, I, I kind of, I used to keep a prayer list, and I still kind of do in my head, but I, but I changed from doing that because here's how it would work. I would list all the needs that I knew about, and then I'd go back over the list every once in a while, and I'd cross out the ones that God had answered or check them off, and then it's like, okay, God, here's what you need to do this week, and at least if you're going to do that, go back over the checked off ones and spend some time really thanking him. Because otherwise, it's treating him as if, God, you're never going to be done. It's never going to be enough. I'm always going to need more, want more, desire more. I love the heart of someone who says, and this really should be all of our hearts, God, you have done so much for me that if you don't ever do anything else for me, if I die right now, I'm a blessed person. I have been so blessed by you. I have been so enriched by you. I've already received so much more from you. How much nicer that is than if our prayers always sound like we're grabbing God by the throat and letting him know, we're talking a real emergency here, God. And if you don't do this, I think a whole lot of people are going to lose their faith. In fact, I'm going to wonder whether there's really a God unless you answer this prayer. See the difference? The peace that comes from being thankful, getting that perspective, living a life of love, that's how life's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to function. And then a good source as to where that comes from is verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell, that means to be at home with, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, encouraging one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now it's interesting, the parallel to this in Ephesians says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. To be filled with the Spirit is another way of saying, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Those, 
those are equivalent. Taking the word of Christ, taking what he says, and letting it soak into your life is another way of allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and take over areas of your life that you haven't yet surrendered, to allow him to lead and guide. And that really doesn't work well when you're drunk. That's why he told the Ephesians, you know, not to get drunk if they really want to be filled with the Spirit. Getting drunk is a a way that the world chemically tries to fix what's wrong. And every time we start to feel the pressure, every time we start to feel the stress, there are basically two things you can try. You can have a drink, and that'll help for a little while, and then it creates a lot more problems down the road. Or you can let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. You can allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. You can come to him and say, God, I feel like getting drunk right now, so would you come in and and do that work in my life and give me your peace? Would you relieve the pressure so that I don't have to resort to artificial chemical means of doing that? It's a choice that we make. But being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within you, um, it doesn't leave you hungover, doesn't ruin all your relationships, doesn't leave you thrown up by yourself, wondering what happened, or seeing you know, black eyes and lumps on your head and not being quite sure where they came from or how you got home. Really, God's Word and His Spirit can soothe what's wrong with you in a way that nothing else can. And if you're someone who struggles with addictions, um, I'm, I'm not bagging on you at all. I'm not wanting to pound you over the head. And if sometimes you fall into that, even if you're, even if you're trying not to, I, I want to assure you, I understand completely what you're going through. And we all should. And God knows, and when God sees you when you just can't take it anymore, and so you go have a few drinks, and that's the way you medicate yourself, God doesn't look at that and say, I'm sick of you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, I'm sure it, it just hurts him to know that if you would just draw close to him, he would deal with what hurts, and he could help you to do that. And he wants you to discover how his word and his spirit really can do that. And how if you get together with brothers and sisters in the Lord, if you worship God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, if you you draw close, you could save yourself a lot of trouble. You can save yourself and others in your life a lot of pain. But again, don't feel like, oh, I'm just a bad Christian because I struggle with some of these things. No, understand, you're really close. In fact, a person who drinks out of need and compulsion, a person who drinks or takes drugs out from depression and and discouragement and things like that, in some ways, you're better off than a person who um, thinks they have no need. A person who decides that living at a fevered pitch of anxiety is the way they want to live. That's not the way anyone is designed to live. Some people have more endurance than others, and maybe you've been able to get by for years with a high level of stress. And you've made everyone around you miserable, but you live by that motto, I give ulcers, I don't get them. But... (laughs) I had a guy, I knew a guy that used to say that, and he lived by that rule for sure. But no, at least if you admit that, you, that you're drinking sometimes to soothe your pain, at least you're halfway there. At least you understand your need. Just take it a step further and realize there's way better way of dealing with that. And it's doing it God's way. And You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So if you're struggling, don't be discouraged. I just want to encourage you. And again, it 
it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly with you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I'll tell you something. I don't think that as many people who are children of God would be struggling with medication, with alcohol, with compulsive um, sexual habits, with addictions to pornography and other things like that, I really don't think that would be nearly as big of a problem today if we were better at encouraging each other, if we were better at, at singing to each other and with each other, worshiping God, and, and as he says, to, to do for each other those things that will bring grace to someone's heart, to our response when we see someone blowing it should be to bring God's grace to them and to encourage them to worship God and to, and to let them know that God understands and that he has something better for them. And honestly, if we did that better, I'm quite sure that less people would live secret dual lives whereby they're not getting the encouragement they need from fellowship and from worship, and therefore they hide in a corner by themselves in order to fill what's missing in their lives. It's so important that we get this for each other, that we realize that being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within us is, is a team sport. It's something that we do for each other. I so appreciate when people will share a scripture with me. Just shoot me an email and say, hey, I was praying for you and this scripture came to mind. I, I love that. I appreciate it. I, sometimes people will feel led to give me a particular book and you know, the jury's out on some of them, but sometimes it's like exactly what I needed. It's so encouraging and refreshing. For somebody to just come and share what God's doing in their life and what they're learning, that, that builds us up. It reinforces our gratefulness to God. It gives us that perspective. The Christian life is to be lived together. It's not a solo thing. It's not for monks, you know, off alone. It's for us to live it together with the kind of grace that allows us to put up with each other to encourage each other, to love each other, to express our thanks to each other and for each other, to live our lives just without regrets. So often we are afraid to say things that are in our heart to someone. And, and I, I see this whenever someone dies suddenly. And I've had this happen many times where someone I really cared about, all of a sudden they go to be with the Lord and I just wish I could have one more conversation with them, or I wish that the last conversation that I had with them wasn't unpleasant, or that I hadn't been so arrogant or so dismissive, or, you know, just wish I could have one more shot at it. And there's so much that we have in our hearts that we don't express to each other, and we need to be expressing. That's how love is is manifest so often for us, is when we, we actually close those loops and express those relationships. There's a song that uh, John Mayer wrote called Say, and the chorus of it, the hook that goes over and over again is, say what you need to say, say what you need to say. And I think that's such a good um, and a beautiful reminder for us as Christians to not hold back, but to realize for each of us, our survival and our happiness, our encouragement, our peace, our love depends on us actually putting love into action and saying those things that, that need to be said while you still have an opportunity to say them. And the body of Christ is glorious when it functions the way it's supposed to. And... This is a, 
a picture of how that works. Teaching each other, admonishing each other, worshiping together, and having grace in your heart to the Lord. And then he comes with a general statement. This is such an important verse. If you underline in your Bibles, you should definitely underline this one. Probably verse 16 and 15 and 14 and 13 and 12 too. But I just underlined the whole thing. But he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, if it's saying it or if it's doing it, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whatever you say, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean you say, I want to tell you in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are a complete jerk. I hate you and you're going to hell in the name of Jesus. What he's saying is, in our connections with each other, everything that we say and everything that we do should be with the awareness that we represent Jesus Christ. I like that we are called Christians because that's taking his name and putting it on us. When the name Christian was first invented by people that wanted to make fun of Christians, but they adapted it and said, yeah, we're Christians. Kind of like back in the 70s when there was a real revival, uh, especially among the um, hippie culture, and people started calling them Jesus freaks. And then we were like, yeah, I am a Jesus freak, I guess. That's okay. Um, The name of Jesus. Do you wear his name? Do you call yourself Christian? Then understand that whatever you say and whatever you do, you're doing it in his name. You know, maybe you were raised in a family that had a great deal of pride in their family name. And I know people who say that they were constantly told, when you go out, when you're at school, when you're out on the street, you are a Thomas, you are a Smith, you are a Jones, you are, a, remember, you're bearing our name. And, and it's really true that when you do something bad, it causes people to think bad of your whole family. On the other hand, when you do something good, there are people who I meet for the first time, and I like them because of who they're with. I like the person that they're with, and I just think, you know, if, if they like you, then I like you. I, I can see that connection. That's what references are all about. And what he's saying is, understand this, people are going to make decisions about Jesus based on what you say and what you do, like it or not. Now, that can be kind of frustrating because we're not perfect. And I am going to do things or say things probably most days that make him look bad. And so you think, boy, this is hopeless. No. What I need to do, though, is when I mess up, I need to then be willing to apologize and to make it right and to confess my sin. And a lot of times I don't want to do that because it feels like you just lost the argument. But what argument that you ever won really brought peace to your life anyway? Um, usually it brings division. And, and so since, since I am saying what I'm saying in his name, I want to be humble about it. I want it to be just infused with grace. I want to be willing to take it back and redefine it and say it differently if there's a misunderstanding. But I want to understand that people will draw certain conclusions about Jesus based on what I say and what I do and how I say it and what my attitude is. And frankly, I feel like we have a little more liberty among brothers and sisters in Christ than we do out in the world. And sometimes it's just the opposite. If we're around Christians, we're all careful. Ooh, I don't want to say anything offensive because, you know, they might you know, then judge me. That's not what I'm talking about at all. And when we're with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be able to let our guard down a little bit and, and expect grace from, 
what we say. And so a lot of times I'll say things here with Christians that I wouldn't say if I'm sharing with somebody who isn't a Christian. I'm, I'm more careful with them <coughs> because I understand their whole eternal future hangs on what they decide about Jesus. And if I am a part of showing them Jesus, then I want to make sure I remember that I'm bearing his name and I'm careful and, I, and I, I'm not paranoid about it and I'm not just constantly feeling condemned or worried. But at the same time, I just remind myself, and we all should, whatever we do, we're taking him with us. We're taking his name with us. And that matters, and that's important. And so do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks again to God the Father through him. Have a spirit of gratefulness. Have a spirit of appreciation. Changes everything. And then he goes into kind of a quick version of what he went into in greater detail in, the, in his letter to Ephesus. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, remember, the context is, again, how we can encourage each other, how we can be gracious to each other, how we can be at peace with each other, how we can demonstrate the love that is definitive of what a believer is. And so now he quickly applies it, and it's kind of like he says, and wives, this means you with your husbands, too. That's appropriate in the Lord, whether they deserve it or not, just just do it. Submit. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives. Don't just love other people. Make sure that your love starts at home with your wife. I don't know why. I mean, husbands are commanded to be submissive to others, including their wives. Submit yourselves one to another, Paul says in Ephesians. Um, and certainly, we're women are commanded to love their husbands. But when he is reminding us, he goes to a, the areas that may be difficult for us, that he might want to be prodding a little bit. And so for wives, that must be um, submission. I don't know. I sure haven't seen that from my wife. She's perfectly submissive. But um, apparently some women, at least back then, had that issue. And... <laughs> And husbands weren't being as loving as they should be. Um, of course, we're not like that. But love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. I could do a whole study on why they might be tempted to be bitter. But um, <laughs> again, it's not something I've personally experienced. So it's just there. That's what it says. <laughs> By the way, the word bitter... You know when you eat something bitter, it's like sharp and pungent? That's really what the word means. And so um, rather than just feeling bitter towards them, this can also be referring to doing sharp, pungent things that may hurt a sensitive person. And so keep that in mind. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. That really means don't say things that's going to start a fight with them. Don't say things that's going to bring a, um, a strong reaction from your kids. Children haven't learned the kind of self-control that adults hopefully learn. And so they can be rather volatile. They can be rather explosive. You see this um, from a baby stage I mean, they can just, you, you see the, this sin nature that exists in them whereby they just hold their breath and then it just comes out. And, it, and it's so, well, sometimes they just have to do it. It's a way of learning and growing up. But we need to make sure as parents that we're not saying things that we know are going to bring that kind of a reaction. And sometimes fathers tend to be more prone to that because maybe mothers have spent more time with the kids, know them a little better. And, you know, you, you start out thinking that, oh, I'm going to raise them and I'm going to be in control and 
ultimately, any good mother recognizes that you need to learn to be flexible. There are certain things that at certain times that you just don't go there unless you want to be having a constant battle with your kids. But a lot of times because dad's typically off at work all day, he doesn't always have that um, sensitivity that a woman might have. But not only that, kids look to their dad in a unique way because dad's not there as much. And so they expect more from you. And so if a dad lets down a kid, it sometimes hurts them much more than if mom does because they have this ongoing kind of battle with mom whereby they're very secure in the relationship, but it's a lot of back and forth and you kind of work through things, whereas dad is a little bit more of a stranger in the home because he's gone all day, so they're really excited to see dad. So then if dad acts like he doesn't care or if dad says something, for instance, that makes a child feel like a failure, even when they're older, even adult children, sometimes they still want to please their dad. It's a big thing. And if dad is not pleased with you, it's provoking. It works you up. It's painful. And so he's saying, hey, don't do that. Learn to know your kids well enough so that you're not poking them and antagonizing them, whether intentionally or not because they'll become discouraged. That word there is the word um, thumos, which is a, it's the word athumos. The word thumos is a word that means to, to breathe heavy, to be passionate. And the a as the prefix to it means not. And so what he's saying here, and I think this applies to both parents, don't do things that will kill your kid's passion. Don't look on child's rearing as a way of just like you break a horse and break their spirit. It's one of the problems that I have with some of the modern theories of child rearing that, that make it so that it's almost like, oh, the Christian who raises their kids needs to make them so that they're always obedient the first time, so that they're just always so respectful. So that, and, and training kids like you would train your dog to go, okay, people are here, sit, stand up, roll over, pray, fetch, lay down. That's the way some people want their kids to be. But there's something, and I've seen people who raise their kids that way. Sometimes it can really backfire, sometimes not. But the one thing that I do see is just this lack of passion because they've been told that their emotional reactions are unacceptable, that they need to bottle it up, that they need to not express themselves. And sometimes the first way that kids learn to express themselves is inappropriate. Some of us never outgrow that, but most of us kind of tailor it and work on it. But what a shame if what we do in the, in the name of discipline kills the passion that's within a child. Same thing goes for school teachers. Some school teachers just want the class environment to be perfect um, because that's easier for teachers. And so their goal is just for everyone to shut up. That's the whole thing. Those aren't the kind of environments where learning takes place in a most effective way. Because people learn about things they're passionate about. But when people are passionate, sometimes they speak out of turn. Sometimes they laugh. If you're in trouble for laughing, what does that say? Like, while you're in this class, you can't be human? Is that the deal? And I think people have completely misunderstood the idea of, of child-rearing and the idea of education to make it so that this is all about the teacher getting through the material. This is all about the parent not being embarrassed by their kid. No, it's not. Being a parent to a child is about seeing that child develop in all of their passion, in all of their completeness, having them express themselves. And yes, learning that things will work better for them if they can learn to control themselves within certain environments. But at the same time, we need to be so careful that we don't just send a message that says, 
I, I am going to break you. Our family is boot camp. Our class is I'm in charge and you sit there and you do as you are told and you speak when you are spoken to. Hey, that does not lead to people who are full of life, abundant life. And, you know, our society is drugging up every kid that demonstrates any sort of sense of individualism. I mean, the kid who <coughs> is, and, I, and by the way, I'm not against all medication for kids who have severe learning problems, so it's a complicated issue. I don't want to broad brush it in a simple way, but I just want to say this. There's something wrong when boys who act like boys are diagnosed, as there's something wrong with them because they don't function in our kind of learning environment. And a strong-willed child is not the worst thing that can happen to you. If you have a strong-willed child, you should praise God for them. They are a huge gift. They bring passion to life. The people in life who have really contributed to society so many times would be diagnosed as having learning disabilities or being, um, you know, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and things like that. Hey, yeah, if that was really the way it was and we took that to an extreme, our kids would grow up to be Hitler youth, line them all up in a nice straight line, and they're all worshiping a guy and they have no idea why. And they don't understand that it's wrong to murder people because they've been told that you don't feel, you don't think, you have no passion, you do as you are told. Man, there are great lessons to be learned when kids don't do what they're told and they are commanded to obey their parents. But again, in the context, parents are said, you make sure that you don't turn this, take advantage of this scripture and turn it into you being a passion killer, you being someone who just chokes the life out of a kid. So I feel kind of passionate about it. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, I worked with kids for a long time. But that's the Greek word there, um, athumos, for discouraged. I think I'll just finish here real quick. We're almost done. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Whoever you're working for, in that relationship, yeah, do what you're told. Fit in as an employee in a, in a subservient relationship. Not with eye service. Not just kissing up in order to please someone as men pleasers. But in sincerity of heart, fearing God. When you are in a relationship where you need to get along with someone else, fit in, do what contributes to that relationship, and understand ultimately that pleases God. God doesn't want people who are constantly rocking the boat. He wants people who learn how to, how to work with others and be a blessing to them. Sincerity of heart. And whatever you do, I love this verse, you should underline this one too, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, that covers everything you do, everything that you say, do it heartily. That word heartily, and the reason we use that word is because it's the idea of do it from the heart, do it sincerely. It's an interesting word. It's two words put together. One of them is the word suke. We, we talk about our psyche. It's that immaterial part of you. It's that emotional, passionate part of you. And then it has the prefix ek, which means out of or away from. And so what he's saying is everything that you do, do it from the gut. Do it from the psyche. Do it out of sincerity out of passion. Don't do it halfway. Don't do it in a way that's like, eh, whatever, I'll do the bare minimum just to get by. Oh, you know, I'll pull a C minus in life, that's fine. No, put your heart into everything that you do. 
you represent Jesus Christ. People are watching what you do, whether you do it well. You notice this right away. When you go in a restaurant, there are some people in some restaurants that are just really doing it from their heart. They're serving and they love to serve and they're excited about it. There are others who put on a plastic face because they think they're going to get fired if they don't. And they don't understand the relationship of being happy and getting tips, for instance, in that situation. But he's saying here, with your life, do it from the heart. Live it with passion. Believe in what you're doing. If you don't believe it, don't do it. Change what you're doing. But find what you're passionate about and spend your life in that passion. Now, sometimes you may be in a job that you're not particularly passionate about, but start to think about what it would be like not to have a job, and you'll get more passionate about it. Sometimes you might work a job so that you can provide the opportunity to do what you're passionate about when you do that. But find your passion and do what you have to do in order to perform that passion and connect everything that you do with that passion. Again, he probably remembered to say this because he was saying, don't you know, knock this out of your kids. And now he says everything that you do, do it from the gut, do it from your psyche. Put your heart into it because God's gonna reward you based on how you do what you do, not what you do, how you do it. So God will make it worth your while, no matter what you're doing and who you're serving. And he said, you serve the Lord Christ. He's the one you work for. And then he says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partiality. In other words, in eternity, it matters what you do here. There are rewards, and there are loss of rewards. And he goes, realize that there are consequences to whether or not you do what you do from the heart whether you do it passionately in your family relationships in your worship in your ministry to others in the way you give in everything that you do from the heart there are rewards connected with that and then verse one of chapter four really goes with this so we'll read it masters give your bond servants what is just and fair knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, yeah, if you work for somebody, you need to do your absolute best work for them. But if you have people working for you, just remember you have a boss, and you're going to have to answer to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these reminders from your word. It's good stuff, just deep and, and, and valuable lessons for us about life, about how we do life. And so, Lord, we thank you for sharing these things with us tonight. Make them a part of our lives. Make them a part of our hearts that, that we can truly begin to live life the way it's designed and that people will look at us and think good things about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.